0: This is a Triple J Podcast. Hack. (laughs) Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. I'm wondering, do you get into a bit of a siesta, a bit of an afternoon nap? Because if you're the kind of person that loves this, you're going to want to listen later in this podcast. We're looking at whether a nap in the afternoon could be the answer to helping us live in warmer conditions. And we know air conditioning is a big thing, but could it be doing a lot of harm that naps could be helping? I don't know. There's some research into this at the moment and how communities in some of the hottest parts of the country and the world deal with heat. That's coming up later. Also, Bollywood, it's a mammoth industry. We know that pumping out thousands of movies every year. But is it being used as a political tool to
1: influence voters in India? We're going to get into that as well first, though. Hack. That lack of information going to the public, that actually undermines our democratic process. On Triple J.
0: Every day around the world, there are scientists, researchers slaving away on studies. They're looking into all kinds of stuff. And at the end of it, they present their research and hopefully those findings to the world. And they're used to better the world, further our understanding of environment, of technologies, Maybe it surprises you to hear, though, that some of the research never makes it to the public. And that's not because it never gets finished or it isn't good enough. It's because governments or industries that fund the research block it from being released. It's called research suppression. And it happens here in Australia too. So, what kind of impact is this research suppression having on democracy? Angel Parsons has been taking a
2: look. You know that big new construction going in down the road? Or the new highway being built? Or something a lot bigger? The final environmental step for Australia's newest thermal coal mine. The green light for its
3: $3.6
4: billion We'll promise to build a series of dams for
2: our... Well, our developed world is constantly changing, and often there's a whole lot going on behind the scenes in terms of science and research to assess the impacts of a project before and during its life cycle. But here's the catch.
1: Many of us have trouble talking about controversial issues because of pressure from our employers or pressure from the public.
2: Sometimes science doesn't get to see the light of day, it's suppressed, even here in Australia, by governments or private companies who fund it.
5: I personally am very interested in doing the research, but then also transmitting it and being involved with science communication. As I said, there's a heap of research
2: going on behind the scenes across the country all the time, but on what and what
5: does it actually mean to be out in the field doing science? My name is Jalen Myers. I am a PhD student at James Cook University, Townsville.
2: Jalen's doing her PhD on stingrays and gets to be out in the field, oceans in her case, collecting data. It's
5: just cartilage there, so we don't know much about stingrays, if you could if you could believe that. People uh-huh. know they they bury in the sand and they know not to step on them, but not much else. One of the things I do to learn about stingrays: fly drones around, see what the stingrays are doing, where they're at. The other thing I do, which people are more excited about, is I actually go out and catch stingrays and punch a little hole right by the edge so that I can look at different aspects of their diet. So I catch stingrays and I actually make them puke. And then I just gently push until I get past the back of the throat. Go! So I study stingray vomit to understand what they're eating and how that relates to what's available in the environment and how different species uh, select different things to eat.
2: Jalen's research will one day contribute to our understanding of these creatures and it won't be suppressed or anything like that but she's super passionate about communicating science. And she says science suppression is a super concerning prospect for a young scientist to think about.
5: I wonder if I would be in a position where that could ever happen. If I stick with studying my sharks and rays, getting broader people, broader audiences to understand what I do for my research and why it's important. And I think every scientist has to consider how they can be part of that.
1: So there's a range of reasons why the science we're doing wasn't able to get out. And I thought, well, if this happens widely, then it's a big problem. We need to sort of ha- have a have a closer look at it.
2: This is Professor Don Driscoll from Deakin Uni. He's also with the Ecological Society of Australia.
1: I've spoken to many consultants who say, you know, we had, we collected evidence that uh, there were threatened species in this area, uh, yet the the development still went ahead.
2: Don spent a lot of time looking into this problem and a few years back, he led a survey. Some of the participants were funded by government departments or industry. So for example, a mining company, almost 40% of industry respondents said they'd been banned from publicly communicating their research. About half of the government funded respondents said the same.
1: Research oppression is when either science isn't done in the first place because it's not funded. So so some research doesn't get done at all. Uh, for other research that does get done, then there's uh, the challenge of communicating it. If a government researcher does it, then it has to be approved to be released. And often they won't get approval if it's if it's going to paint the minister in a bad light. But it also happens in universities. So there's the, the potential for it to happen in universities because many of us get funding from government, put, put out a funding round... To do some research into environmental impacts of different things and and trying to improve management. And the contracts that we have to sign include clauses which mean that unless the department is entirely happy with what we're going to say and when we're going to say it, they can suppress us.
2: And Don says the impact on early career researchers is another massive consequence of science suppression.
1: At best they feel frustrated, Um, they can feel undermined, they can feel extremely disillusioned and uh, aren't really willing to put in their best efforts in their workplaces because they feel like their their best efforts aren't appreciated. And in, in some cases, it, it has led to um, serious mental illness.
2: At the start of her research career now, Jaylin says she can really see how devastating that would be. Gosh, that would be
5: unthinkable. Like if the research that I'd been doing for three years was just taken away from me or, or modified into something unrecognizable or the impact, I didn't have any control over that. That would be pretty depressing because that's what you want is you want to have an impact to make it feel like what you did was worth something. Writing a book that someone throws in the trash can. Hack on Triple J.
0: Angel Parsons with that update. And hey, we are getting some messages in on this one. Someone says it's sad to hear research into solar and batteries used to be at the forefront of Australian research, but it's gone overseas because of a lack of funding. That one was from Mo. Other people saying, yeah, this is a big issue. We feel like politics always gets involved. I want to get into this a bit more. Someone who knows quite a bit about it is Bill Lawrence. He's a distinguished research professor at James Cook Uni. He's with us now. G'day, Bill. Thanks for coming on Hack.
6: Sure, Dave. Pleasure.
0: We've just heard that research suppression is a real issue around the world. What are the impacts of this kind of suppression, you know, very broadly on society, but on science as well?
6: Well, in the realm of nature conservation, which is where I work, it's huge because what's happening is that some of the the more critical work, the work that's coming out and saying, look, we've really got a serious environmental problem in this area, or these kinds of new issues, these new environmental threats are going to be really serious. That kind of stuff just doesn't get aired. Uh, Governments tend to come cracking down on on a variety of things, corporations as well. Um, So I think, you know, it can have a lot of effects across the board, but the bottom line is, Insofar as we're relying on scientific research to tell us about what's really happening in the world in a way that's hopefully pretty robust, that gets compromised when you have political leaders that are basically clamping down, suppressing the work, or, or in some cases, really kind of attacking more personally in various ways, attacking the scientists that are, that are doing that work.
0: It must be a really difficult line to navigate because you've got these scientists who need governments, businesses, industries to fund the work that they're doing in the first place.
6: Yeah, it's it can be a very fine line. And in some places, I mean, the truth is there's just a lot of scientists in many countries in the world that are kind of running scared. They've got their heads down. Um, they're worried that, you know, that they don't want to do something that uh, would... Uh, you know, affect their relationship with the government, including their funding and also just research permits, the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Brazil, I mean, countries all around the world, that this kind of stuff is happening in a surprisingly common way, a lot more than we would have thought, and also that it really is affecting the behavior of people you know, on the ground.
0: Is it something that researchers want to talk about or are they a bit scared to be out there making these issues very public because they're worried about future funding and those kinds of things?
6: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of concern about trying to, you know, getting offside with the government. And I think many researchers, not all, there's a few brave souls that are out there yelling into the wind sometimes. But I think a lot of researchers, certainly our experience suggests that um, a lot of researchers are just you know, very concerned. And, and, and the governments in some in some places also can o- not only hold up research funding and also can affect research permits, but they can do things like they can just button down. They have stipulations that say, you can't release this work, this research until we've approved it. And there's a number of studies that we've heard about, you know, again, the confidential, told to us in a confidential way, uh, that have never seen the light of day because the government's uh, haven't just released them.
0: You spoke a bit about some of the countries around the world where this is a very big problem. Before we get to one country in particular, Indonesia, I wanted to ask about Australia.
6: Is it a big issue here? Well, I think it's, you know, there's different kinds of pressure that are applied in different kinds of arenas, but I can tell you absolutely that there have been scientists here in Australia that have been pressured by the government to downplay or to not release findings at a time when that research was really controversial or, or really topical. So well, I could think of a few examples, but I, I won't go into too many specifics here in part because some of these things are still still really sensitive kinds of issues.
0: This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with research professor Bill Lawrence from James Cook University about research suppression and the the issue that it is not only here in Australia, but around the world. Bill, you had a look at Indonesia in particular because there was some suppression going
6: on there. What was that about? There are quite a few scientists working there that have been feeling suppressed or oppressed or, or challenged by the situation on the ground there. The government, you know, certain ministries there are not friendly to research opinions that come out that disagree with them. There was a a well-known researcher named David Gaveau who, who showed that fires in Indonesia were a lot more prevalent than the government had said. I think it was about three years ago. He was essentially kicked out of the country and not allowed to do research there anymore. More recently, there have been, I think it was three or four scientists uh, who wrote an editorial about the uh, Bornean orangutan saying that its population was more precarious than the government had claimed. And they've all had their research permits or their other permissions stopped. The, the ministry that was critical of them has told its people not to have anything to do with, do with those people. So there's a number of these cases. And then again, in researching this article, we talked to different people. And there were, in some cases, really good stories that would have been great to include in the article, but we couldn't. We absolutely couldn't figure out a way to do it without risking, you know, the Possibly the employment or, or other things affecting scientists that were telling us about these these stories.
0: So, Bill, what do we need to do to overcome these big challenges we're seeing in terms of research suppression to make sure that people around the world are getting the best scientific analysis uh, research that's available? How do we combat this issue?
6: We've talked about something like an anonymized journal where you could actually publish scientific research, like a in almost a whistleblower sense but without having your name appear anywhere in the article. That's something that, you know, scientists, I think, inherently don't really like to do a whole bunch of work and then not get any credit for it. I, don't, I think everybody's like that. But, but anyway, that's an option that, that one can talk about. Also, research funders. You know, you could ask people that are giving money out for research, for international and domestic research. You could ask them to stipulate that anything that they fund and any work that's produced has to be publicly available. And that's just an essential part of accepting the research funding. So I do think that there are a few things, uh, Dave, that one can do, you know, to try to address this. But perhaps the best thing is just to be aware of the problem and aware of the fact that governments sometimes, you know, they can convince themselves that they've got everyone's best interest at heart and they can end up doing things that are probably aren't in everyone's best interest and certainly aren't in the interest of the environment.
0: Well, hey, it's definitely an issue that does need more attention. We're happy to be able to speak to you about it. Bill Lawrence from James Cook University, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure. On the text line, a lot of people, some surprise that this is even happening. Someone says, what the F? Researchers need approval from their funders to release their findings. That's so messed up. Another person says, maybe we need guaranteed funding for research so the threat of it being pulled isn't looming over researchers' heads when they publish. Another person, we need an independent body where you can register research before the study starts with the commitment to release the findings no matter what is found. If that was mandatory and common practice, it would stop governments and private companies suppressing unfavourable research. Hey, it's interesting just to talk about it, and so I'm glad that we were able to do a bit of a dive on that. We'll keep checking in. Hack! Do you know... ..not to?
2: (laughs)
5: on Triple J.
0: Bollywood. Yeah, when you think of it, it's a lot of fun, right? You're thinking bright, happy, romantic, funny, huge films for huge audiences. But is there more going on behind the scenes? Pardon the pun. <laughs> I'll the film set because the Modi government in India is being accused of waging a war on Bollywood and using it for party propaganda. What does that mean? Well, the ABC South Asia correspondent Avani Dias has been covering it and she's with us now to explain. G'day, Av. Thanks for coming on, Hack.
3: Hey, Dave.
0: How big is Bollywood? Like, to give some perspective, because, you know, everyone's heard of it, but just how powerful is it as an industry?
3: So Dave, it's been really fascinating living here in India and just seeing how big movies and movie stars and TV shows are here. Like obviously in Australia, people are really into those things. We watch Hollywood movies all the time. And you know, there's a big Australian movie scene as well. But here it's just this big part of Indian identity. And so for many decades, people, governments have been trying to use it to influence people just because it's so massive. It's like this weekly ritual when there's a new movie out people pay about you know a couple of dollars to get into the movie cinemas some of them are so huge I've been going to them and they have like a thousand people in there and people really go crazy when they're watching these movies and obviously you know we know Bollywood we know the term as being something to do with like fun and color and dancing and singing but what I found is there's actually a lot of serious filmmaking here And now what we're finding is there are these kind of sinister undertones that are getting really political.
0: Well, this is the really interesting part of your investigation looking into filmmaking in India. What did you find in terms of the movies that are being made and and also the political connection?
1: Yeah,
3: so what we were able to find is that there is a really dark undertone in some of these movies and the Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his government is actually trying to use this huge cultural force that is film and TV to influence voters And he's being accused of using it directly as propaganda. So kind of think about Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister of Australia, using this Australian film that's come out and a series of them to basically show how good his policies are or how good he is as a leader or Trump doing that or Biden in the US. You know, it's kind of obscene to think about but that's what we're finding is happening on the ground here in India so I was able to get onto this film set which was really fascinating it's um for this director his name is Vivek Agnihotri. he was making this movie called the vaccine war and it was showing how India has done such a good job in terms of making the COVID vaccine but as we know you know a lot of people listening would have seen those headlines that show just how bad the India COVID wave was and what we found is that through that film set we're seeing that this movie is going to sort of reflect narendra modi's take on COVID. that things were kind of okay here in india even though it was so devastating in reality in terms of deaths now this director's last film it was called the Kashmir files it was one of the highest grossing films last year so that shows just how massive these films are and In India, that was super polarising because people said it was Islamophobic, it wasn't depicting Muslims in the right way. But, Dave, what was really extraordinary was that the Prime Minister himself came out and defended the film. He said, this film is showing the truth. It's all correct. And, you know, his, his party members were encouraging people to go and watch it. They were giving people days off work to watch this movie, which is wild.
0: So you were on this film set and you got to speak to this filmmaker. Were you able to question him about motives, intentions and put some of these allegations to him?
3: It was actually a pretty strange experience, I'm going to be honest, because we were sort of just there for a full day watching how his movies were being made. And then we, we did do an interview with him and that's when things got really heated. He got pretty angry at the line of questioning that I was putting to him, the fact that a lot of people were concerned about the contents of his film and what happened. You know, his last film, The Kashmir Files, there were some viewers in, in um, cinemas chanting anti-Muslim slogans. So I put that to him. He defended the film. He said he was showing a different side that hadn't been shown before. He said he was allowed to do that and that, you know, a lot of people actually liked this film. But he was really unhappy with that depiction and at one point he actually stopped asked us to stop rolling and yeah it became a bit of a thing
0: that's so interesting you're listening to hack i'm dave marchese i'm speaking with abc south asia correspondent avani Dias about bollywood indian filmmaking and how the government in india is potentially using movies as a propaganda tool av what about actors like were you able to speak to some of the people who are in these movies about what they think of this if they're comfortable with it
3: it's really interesting right you know we were talking about how big movies and film stars are here in india they are worshipped to an extent that I've never seen before. But one of the people I spoke to was this young actor named Mohammed Zeeshanayou. He was starring in this political thriller. It was on Amazon Prime. It's basically like the Indian House of Cards. He's now facing jail time because the Modi government has taken uh, criminal action against this star, as well as the directors of that show. So he said that police were sort of stationed outside his home, his family was freaking out. And now he's still got that possible sentence hanging over him.
0: And just to provide a bit of context here, we've got India's national election coming up next year, right? So presumably it's really important for the government from their perspective to be getting their word, their messaging out there.
5: Yeah,
3: so basically in exactly a year's time, Narendra Modi is going to try and become Prime Minister again. He's If he wins, he'll get 15 years in power. It's a huge term for someone like Narendra Modi and he is becoming basically the most powerful leader in the world because of the amount of people here that he leads. And using film is a good way, according to experts that I've spoken to, in trying to convince voters that what's going on in government terms is correct and you know no one knows how those movies end up Um, influencing voters at the voter box but what experts are saying is that the Modi government is the first in India to use Bollywood, TV, cinema as a whole to really try and influence voters.
0: That's interesting. I was going to ask if it was kind of a new tactic that was being used in India. Of course in other countries under regimes around the world in history we've seen film used as a propaganda tool. I'm wondering Av, is it just uh, indian made films or is it foreign films as well that are being targeted like is there censorship going on with stuff that's coming in from hollywood
3: yeah so that's the really fascinating part as well it's not just indian production so obviously everyone's been talking about oppenheimer this huge movie that's taken over the world in the last couple of weeks about the maker of the atomic bomb and in real life Oppenheimer was really influenced by the Hindu religion he learned the language of Sanskrit and the Modi government here in India is a Hindu nationalist government so that basically means that the government's trying to promote the Hindu religion as the main religion it's passing policies which reflect that despite the fact that there are hundreds of millions of people here of all different religions so that's been a big concern about the Modi government But in the Oppenheimer movie, there's a sex scene and he quotes this line from Hindu scripture. It's, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. It's become a huge phrase. And now Modi government ministers have been trying to effectively get the film censored they've tried to cut out scenes it did eventually get um, approved by the film board but the minister in charge the Modi government minister in charge is saying oh this is not good so anyway that sex scene actually got set um censored here in India I watched the movie the other week so yeah it's not just Indian productions it's Hollywood movies as well that are being targeted
0: This is such an interesting story, Av, and it's incredible that you've been able to get this access and to get onto the film sets. South Asia correspondent Avani Dyes, thanks for breaking that all down for us. Hack. On Triple J. And if you do want to see more on this, there's a big write-up on ABC News. Also, Avenue's documentary on Bollywood's going to be on ABC TV. You'll also be able to catch it on YouTube as well. Someone on the text line, it's interesting that we're having this conversation as if the entire Marvel and superhero cinematic universe is not US Army propaganda. Interesting note to end on. Hack, are we designed to nap during the day? I love napping, OK? On Triple J. I don't think there's going to be much argument if we float the idea of more naps in the day, right? Sure, the benefit of getting a bit of extra rest, which we could all use, but could a siesta be the secret to helping us deal with increasing temperatures? Because in some of the hottest parts of Australia in the Top End, First Nations communities know that resting during the hottest parts of the day is really important. And some researchers are looking into it. Let's find out more now. Simon Quilty's a doctor in the NT and a researcher at ANU, and he's with us now. G'day, Simon. Welcome to Hack. Thanks, mate. Air conditioning obviously can be life-saving during heat waves, but there's some downsides to that as well, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So we've just published a paper, uh, 40 years of um, all of the deaths in the Northern Territory, and we've matched each death with a temperature on the day of death. And what is really fascinating is that in the last 40 years, uh, we've become more susceptible to heat, not less. And if you imagine Darwin back in the 1980s, it was a pretty uh, relaxed kind of atmosphere. People went with the weather and definitely on hot afternoons, people would chill out under a tree or by the pool. But if you go to Darwin now, most people spend most of their day in air-conditioned spaces. And so there's this real paradox that... um. Even though we have this thing that's supposed to be protective for our health, it turns out that there's lots of um, downsides to air conditioning. And the first one is that you're living in air-conditioned space so much that your body doesn't get a chance to acclimatise.
0: So we're becoming too reliant on AC, I guess, is, you know, the real issue here. I mean, you've been doing a lot of research in Indigenous communities as well, Simon, because they're often in some of the hottest parts of the country and there's not a great deal of access to AC.
4: No, absolutely. So that was a stark contrast in our study. Uh, My co-author and Warramunga elder, Norman Frank helped us interpret the data. And uh, obviously, Warramunga people and people across the north of Australia have lived uh, hot weather for thousands of generations and they are incredibly adept at living in very hot climates and not just surviving but thriving. And uh, Norm has a lot to teach us, in fact a lot of First Nations people have this exquisite knowledge of how to really thrive in hot environments and we really need to be looking at cultural alternatives to just cranking up the air conditioning and you can see in Europe with their recent heat wave that even Germany now is starting to talk about reintroducing the siesta. Maybe it's about time we thought about it in Australia.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because some parts of Europe definitely had this as very much a part of their culture. But in recent years, it's kind of died off a little bit as I guess people have been working more and there's just been this grind. Do you think we're going to have to change the way we structure our day, Simon, to deal with changing weather?
4: definitely well look i mean we live in australia it's a hot country and the nine to five working day dates back to to um britain we have a culture that should celebrate the outdoors and not hide away from it and definitely as the weather gets hotter we really need to start listening to people like norman frank dripperula and understanding how we can actually thrive and enjoy it and that comes down to spending less time in air conditioning and when you do switch the air conditioner off if you live in a hot climate crank up the temperature a bit, set it at 26 or 27 degrees so that your body can get used to that temperature.
0: That's so interesting. There's also obviously an economic benefit to this, to the hip pocket in terms of not having to pay electricity bills um, yeah. that are so expensive if you're using aircon all the time. Is is there a lot of research into this area, Simon? Like you, you're looking into it here in Australia. Is there lots of other people
4: around the world looking into it? No, this is one of the really surprising things. Western medicine is really adept at, you know, treating organs and diseases, but we don't really understand our environment. And Norman Frank, once again, talks about this beautiful concept of guarda, which is an awareness of your environment that protects and, and allows you to thrive in places like Castro or Darwin that are really hot. Uh, and I think, um, so, so this is really quite interesting research. It's kind of breaking with this paradigm that we we're all going to get saved from climate change by turning the air conditioners up. It turns out that that's probably harming us more than it is helping us if we set it to 21 degrees Celsius.
0: We'll, we'll definitely be keeping track of what you're finding in the top end. Simon Quilty, researcher at ANU, thank you very much for coming on Hack.
4: Thanks, Much appreciated.
0: we have got some messages coming through on this one. Talking about siestas, if if people do, you know, get around them already, someone says, siesta was the best thing I did for my mental health. I have epilepsy and struggled with mental health issues. About 10 years ago, I started having a one-hour nap every day where possible. It changed my life completely, much happier, and epilepsy is now under control. Interesting stuff there. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.
5: Hack on
0: Triple Jack.